outside of the church, when was the last time you heard someone say, think less of yourself? I have a feeling most of you would have a really hard time thinking of a time. Because it is by far the prevailing mindset of today to think more of ourselves, not less of ourselves. We don't need a, a lower view of ourselves. We need a, a higher view of ourselves. We need, we need to believe in ourselves. We need to build up our, our self-esteem, our self-confidence. We need to take pride in whoever we are, most naturally are, and discover our true selves. On top of this, we do not want to ever experience negative things in our lives today. Right? We want pleasure, we want fun, we want entertainment, all for ourselves. We don't want to dwell on the harsh realities of life, so we escape to, to fantasy worlds. We don't want to be reminded of our own shortcomings or failures, and God forbid that we ever go through any hardships ourselves. Really, these are a couple worldviews. The worldviews of individualism and hedonism, which I believe have, have melded into a dominant mindset today. And in this context, humility is the strangest thing in the world. Humility sounds scary, sad. It, it sounds stupid even. Humility requires self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment. Why would we ever want to humble ourselves? Won't that make us feel awful? And won't, won't that just lead to more negative thoughts or depression or worse? I mean, it certainly won't be fun. It won't bring me pleasure. So why would we ever want to go there? We end up defaulting to our world's belief that it has to be better to actually raise our view of ourselves, to feel good about ourselves. It has to be bad to lower ourselves in our own eyes. However, the picture that God's Word paints of humility is not a negative one in the least. We might assume, you know, humility leads to, to feeling bad about yourself, but no. In reality, as we're going to see today, humility can actually be a hugely comforting thing. It's actually something that's freeing. Much more freeing, in fact, than self-expression. It, it may be hard to do. It may not sound like what you want to do at first. But humility can lead to joy, to true significance and value, to confidence and to glory. Let's open up God's Word together to see what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, where we will see this radically countercultural call to humility again, to humble ourselves. I hope that to not only perhaps 
change your mind about humility today, but I hope to actually inspire you to take steps in your life to humble yourself before God. We're going to focus, 1 Peter 5, just on one sentence that runs over two verses. Peter's train of thought, however, begins in the verse before, a verse that we looked at last week. Chapter 5, if you just skim it, it started by talking about church leaders, submission to authority, and we ended last week with verse 5, which called all believers to humility. Look partway through verse 5, it says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we're going to see today flows directly out of this. But first... If the top of the day is humility, I don't want to assume anything, and so we should probably be really clear right from the get-go what we mean by humility, okay? Because you might not know exactly what we're talking about. My favorite definition of humility comes from C.J. Mahaney, who says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Okay, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So it's a way of, of viewing ourselves, of assessing ourselves, how we see who we are. All right? But humility, as you see, is it's a, it's a way of looking at things very honestly and realistically. And it takes two main things into consideration. God's holiness and our sinfulness. Okay, those are the two main things, God's holiness, our sinfulness. When we get a, a true and proper perspective on these things, it leads to humility. When we realize how transcendent, how great, how perfect, how powerful God is, and how fallen, limited, corrupted, even evil we are. He is high, we are low. Now, there's a lot of confusion surrounding humility and self-esteem. Right? We think God clearly wants us to be humble. It's very clear in his word. But isn't low self-esteem bad? Well, yes and no. I think that humility is a form of low self-esteem or self-image, yes. However, humility is very different than what most people mean by low self-esteem. See, the key word in the de definition of humility there is honestly. You could say humility is honest self-esteem. Okay, it, It's not false esteem on either the positive or the negative side. It's honest self-esteem. Humility is is not seeing yourself as worthless or of no value, because that's untrue. It's not seeing yourself as a failure or hopeless. That is false. It's not self-pity or self-loathing or, or dwelling on negative thoughts. It's not any of those things. It is admitting that you're a sinner, and that you have really severe shortcomings and limitations. J.A. Packer says this, 
Being humble is not a matter of pretending to be worthless, but is a form of realism, not only regarding the real badness of one's sins and stupidities and the real depth of one's dependence on God's grace, but also regarding the real range of one's abilities. Humble believers know what they can and cannot do. They know both their gifts and their limitations. Okay, that's humility. Pride, on the other hand, is an inaccurately high view of oneself. Right? In light of the same things, in light of who God is, in light of, who sin, of what sin is, anytime we think we are better than we are, which is basically all the time. C.S. Lewis says that the first step to humility is to realize you are proud. To think you're not conceited means you are indeed. The first step has to be recognizing this because humility requires seeing our sin. And pride is sin. Pride, in fact, underlies almost all other sins. So, let's admit it, okay? We are proud. We are sinners. We want to be our own gods. Even if we realize that we can't, we wish we could, and we act as if we are. So let's admit that. When I was at a, a pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, the, the speaker there, Sandy Wilson, he was an older, now retired pastor who had been in ministry for many years. And at one point he, in his career, he had been a consultant for a number of churches facing problems. And he said that he could boil down all of these churches' problems to three things that hurt the churches. Okay? What do you think they are? Top of the list was pride. Number two was pride. <laughs> Number three was pride. It's really a, a cancer in the church, and it destroys many things, which makes Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, 5 so critical. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Without humility, we will not relate to one another in right ways, as we'll start looking on each other with jealousy or judgmentalism or superiority or contempt. We'll find it nearly impossible to submit, and we'll also find it nearly impossible to lead without domineering. And worse yet, we most certainly will not relate to God in the right way. God opposes the proud, he says. He's, he's not passive here. This is an active, present tense opposition to the proud. If you really understand what this verse is saying, it's like we have two choices. Do you want God's opposition, his enmity, his hostility, his judgment? Or do you want God's grace, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy? It's a hard choice, right? It's like asking whether you would rather have a first-class seat on an airplane or fall out of the plane. <laughs> God opposes the proud, 
But verse 5 also implies that we don't need to stay there. We don't need to stay in resistance to God, that we can clothe ourselves with humility and then be given God's grace. So then, what should we do? If you're like me, proud, but you want to be humble. This is an area of your life where you would love to grow as a follower of Christ in humility. How do we do this? I think Peter's going to answer these questions now. Look with me in verse 6, our passage for the day. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore. Therefore. So, because you want to be on the side of God and the side of grace, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now notice Peter doesn't give some fancy convoluted solution for how to be humble. He essentially says, you want to be humble? Then humble yourselves. I think, well, that's not overly helpful. <laughs> but I think we're going to see that Peter's words contain a lot of truth and they can be quite helpful in what they tell us to do. Notice, first, that if we want to be humble toward one another, like verse 5 told us to be, we've got to start by humbling ourselves toward God. The former flows from the latter. Okay, here's how I would phrase the beginning of our big idea for today, all right? We should humble ourselves under God's power. Okay, we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty power power. Humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, when you hear that term, that the mighty hand of God, you might be confused. God has a hand? What does his hand look like? How do we get ourselves under it? Well, this isn't talking about a literal hand like our human hands. God is spirit. He has no physical body. But in the Bible, God often uses human body parts to describe himself so that we can wrap our minds around certain attributes of his that we wouldn't be able to imagine otherwise. So, for example, the, the eyes of God represent his attention, his omniscience. The ear of God describes him listening to our prayers. And here the, the hand of God is meant to describe God's power, his strength. And you might imagine even a, a, a mighty, really unstoppable, massive hand reaching out down from heaven to move things on earth how, how he wants them to move. Daniel 4.35 says that God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Can't stop his hand. So when you hear the mighty hand of God, you should think of, of strength, of power, of might. You might also think of a particular story from the Bible that displayed this power. Think of a river of blood, an infestation of frogs and flies and locusts, an uh, outbreak of boils, an uh, enormous hailstorm, 
kills all vegetation in the land. Complete darkness, 24-7. Dying firstborns. A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And perhaps most powerfully, an entire sea splitting in two with walls of water on either side and dry ground underneath which hundreds of thousands of people cross through before things spill back over. Of course, if, if you know the scripture, you know I'm talking about when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. In the Old Testament, God's mighty hand was used repeatedly to describe that exodus. Over and over again, it said how God saved Israel with a mighty hand. He did this. Consider Deuteronomy 4.34. Moses asked this there, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So you might actually picture God's hand coming down and causing each of these plagues, these amazing events, touching the Nile River, hurling the hail, blocking the sun, even parting the seas, pulling them apart, holding them in place before letting them come over the Egyptian army. That's our God. This is the, the power that he possesses in his pinky finger. Believe it or not, 1 Peter 5, 6 here, the, the verse we're reading, is the only time this phrase occurs in the entire New Testament. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I think he's trying to bring this to mind for us. And this is, if we think if this is saying to, to humble ourselves under his power, what this means is to, to recognize, to acknowledge this power, to, to respect this power, to fear and worship God as the Almighty One, the Lord Almighty. And it means to to live under the reality of this power in our lives. In the end, what God's power will mean for us is either opposition or exaltation. Thus, to us, his power should either be scary or glorious. Or both. If the first step in becoming humble is to admit our pride and our sin, the second step has to be asking God to save us from our sin and its consequences. Right? Think of it this way. The mighty hand of God is the same hand that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him as king of kings in heaven for the rest of eternity. And if we're, we know from the Bible, once Jesus humbled himself unfathomably low, that's when God the Father exalted him, raised him up above all. 
if we are going to follow in the steps, if we're going to humble ourselves before God, we've got to start here. We've got to admit who we are. We've got to admit our sins against the mighty throne of God. And we've got to plead for His mercy for those sins, which has already been offered to us freely through Jesus. If you've never done that before, I sincerely hope you will today. Even right in this moment in your heart, you would humble yourself, you admit your sins, and plead for God's mercy. Edmund Clowney explains that the humility of which Peter speaks is the humility of repentance, of despairing self-distrust that turns to God in saving faith. If you're already a follower of Christ, you've already done this, there's something else this humility likely implies for us. We know that Peter's original readers were facing hostile opposition from other people, and this really shaped everything in his book. And humbling oneself under God's power in those circumstances would have meant accepting those circumstances as from God's hand. He was sovereign. For us, any suffering that we go through in life will either come directly or indirectly from God's hand. As Job declared in his suffering, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It's in his hand. Coming to terms with this and choosing to trust God is part of being humble before him. Now, given how strong God's hand is, you might be a bit apprehensive at this point. Worried. Uneasy. But Peter's goal was not to scare people in this passage. He actually wanted to encourage us, to strengthen us. See, God's hand may be steadily against sinners, but God's people are no longer just sinners. Right? If we have repented, if we've come to him in faith, we've already begun humbling ourselves. And God's opposition has lifted from us. You know why that is? It's because his opposition was poured out in full force on Christ, on the cross. But his opposition has been lifted from now. We're no longer under the threat of his hand. We're under the protection of his hand. To, to his people, God's hand is not a fist of anger. It's now an open hand of grace. Remember that the verse 5 told us that God gives grace to the humble. This is to encourage us. Peter is now going to explain what he means by that in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He may exalt you. This tells us clearly of why we should be motivated to humble ourselves under God's power. So that, 
so that we receive the grace of exaltation. We should humble ourselves under God's power so that we receive the grace of exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time or in due time. Almost all the best things in life require waiting. Some kind, right? We wait for a baby to be born. Kids wait so long to grow up. We wait to graduate. We wait to get married, start a family. We wait for holidays. If my kids came to me today and asked if we could celebrate Christmas today instead of Canada Day, my answer would be no! <laughs> right? It's not time for that yet. It, and besides, it's 47 stinking degrees outside. <laughs> We'll celebrate Christmas in due time. Believers have not been glorified yet because it's not time for that yet. There will be a proper time when Jesus lifts us up and shares his glory, but only in due time. For now... We live among the sorrow and the pain and the hostility of a broken world. That will not be the case forever. But for now, we wait. Might be here today, and I wonder, like, are you feeling some of the strain of the brokenness of this world today? Are you feeling trodden on, beaten down, Low. Do some people despise you because of your faith? Have you lost some friends? Do you sometimes feel like all Christians are doing these days is losing? Losing court cases. Losing political favor. Losing favor in the, the court of public opinion. Losing in, in journalism, in medicine, in science, in, in social media. We may indeed be losing some things now, and we may yet lose much more. But none of that will have the final word. Because Jesus will have the final word. Tom Schreiner encourages us that the day of humiliation is limited to this world, but the readers of 1 Peter will be lifted on high by God's grace forever. Some of you may not feel very motivated by the promise there in verse 6, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Maybe you don't understand what that will entail, Maybe you can't, you can't picture that in your minds. Or maybe you wonder, why should we even want to be exalted in the first place? Right? Maybe you like flying under the radar, being behind the scenes, going incognito. 
But even if you're like that, I am confident that you also still like being liked by other people. Right? We, even if we like less attention than others, we do crave recognition. We want someone to commend us, to tell us we're doing a good job. We want people to like us, to respect us, to, even, to look up to us, to see us as, as good people, not great people. And these are, are deep and they're natural desires that we all feel. And yet... These are the very desires that may go entirely unmet for the people of God. Right? We may toil in obscurity and anonymity. We may be ignored or dismissed. We may be hated like Jesus was hated. Mocked, belittled, disrespected. We may not be seen as great at all. In fact, we may be seen as the scum of society. Which should make Jesus' promise of exaltation and vindication very appealing. Right? Hostility will be replaced by honor. Humbling will be replaced by glory. Rejection will be replaced by closeness to and affection from God himself. Humbling ourselves under his mighty hand will be so worth it. And then some. And so, what does this humility look like in our lives? How do we do this? We've seen that it implicitly includes repentance and trust. Trust in Christ as Savior and trust in Him as Sovereign. But Peter's not finished yet. He hasn't even finished his sentence yet. And in verse 7, he's going to explicitly give us one very practical way to humble ourselves. Some translations start a new sentence here, but it's actually better to see this as a continuation and therefore directly related to the command to humble ourselves. Okay, verse 7. This explains one key way believers can humble themselves under God's hand. Look at it with me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now this may confuse you. How in the world is humility related to anxiety? Right? Those may seem like two totally distinct and separate topics, not usually connected at all. But let's think carefully about this. What kinds of things do we get anxious about in life? We can get anxious just about anything, right? Our kids, relationships, family conflict, work, finding work, school, health concerns, food allergies, weddings, money, homes, cars, a struggle with sin, the news, what the future holds, a million other things. Now, why do we worry about those things? 
because we fear that things aren't going to be okay, right? Fear they might not work out. But on a deeper level than that, we don't trust that God is going to take care of us. I firmly believe that is the root issue to all of our anxieties. We don't trust God. Instead, we think we need to handle things ourselves, take them into our own hands. And we assume that either we can handle things ourselves, or we fear that we can't. Either way, we're clinging to self-confidence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency and independence, essentially trying to be God and solve all our issues ourselves, which means if we refuse to trust God with these things, it is a form of pride. You ever thought of that? Consistent worry is pride. Tom Schreiner explains that worry denies the care of a sovereign God. Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced they may, that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. Now, I don't think it's wrong to feel worry spring up in the first place. As Christians, what matters is what we do with that anxiety, what we do with that worry, because we have a choice. Okay, we either cling to it in pride, spiraling into more and more anxiety, or we give it over to God and trust Him with our lives. And that is precisely what Peter is encouraging us to do in order to humble ourselves under God. Because not only is God infinitely powerful, he also unbelievably cares for us. And so, we should humble ourselves under God's care. We need to humble ourselves under God's care. Really, his mighty hand includes his care says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Our problem is that we, we don't really believe that that's true. Because if the God who created the universe, who split the seas, who defeated death, really cares for us. That should overshadow any circumstance in life that's causing us anxiety. Sure, not everything will go according to plan in life. We will not avoid pain and suffering, but God cares. He's with us in the trials, and he'll see us through to the other side. Therefore, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we will what? Fear no evil. There, there's no need to worry there. God's got the whole world in his hands. 
Peter's almost certainly alluding to Psalm 55, 22 in this verse, which says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now you might think, okay, I get it. I get it. In the end, Jesus is going to win. We're going to be okay. But there's no way he cares about the little things that plague me through every day. And he can't be concerned with my math exam, or my hydro bill, or my long shifts at work. But you care about them, don't you? And God cares about you. Anyone who's ever truly loved someone else knows that you care about what they care about. Right? Even if I wouldn't usually care about how big a pile of laundry is, I know my wife cares, so I care. Even if I wouldn't care about a, a toy lightsaber being broken, <laughs> my sons care, and so I care. God loves you, and therefore he cares about what you care about body, mind, and soul. He cares about the sparrows, the lilies, about how many hairs are on our head. He knows. He sees. He understands. He is not unaware, unconcerned, aloof, or cruel. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And therefore, trusting him with our anxieties is really a way to acknowledge his care for us. We recognize him as both Lord and sovereign over all of life. Again, like we saw last week, we are under both God's power and under his promise. He's powerful and he cares. And again, this is another instance of God giving grace to the humble. Even the fact that he cares is evidence of massive grace. But he also wants to bless us with his care in the, in the trials, in the situations, in our life, with his care for us. He wants to bless us there. How so? Well, look at verse 7 again. As we cast our anxieties on him, what does he want to give us? It's not mentioned by name. I think it's implied, though. He wants to give us peace. He wants us to be free from those anxieties that cloud our minds every day. And therefore, the point could be completed this way. We should humble ourselves under God's care so that we receive the grace of peace. We need to humble ourselves under God's care so that we receive the grace of His 
peace. This is basically the same point that Paul makes in Philippians 4. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a peace that we all yearn for, even if we don't realize it. And because God cares for us, this is a peace he wants to give us. He wants us to have this. So what do we need to do to experience this peace? Peter answers, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties. What does that mean exactly? To, to cast our anxieties on him. Well, to cast means to throw something or to heave something, right? It's a more dramatic picture than merely handing something over to God, right? It's, it's casting it. It's hurling it. It's unloading it, getting rid of it like a hot potato. There are, there are probably five or ten passages of Scripture that have impacted me extremely deeply over the years. Ones that I, I frequently find myself returning to over and over again, meditating on. You have any like those? Like a few key passages you just always come back to? 1 Peter 5.7 is one of those for me. Even from a, a very young age, I remember singing this song, you probably, many of you probably know, the Cares Chorus. I'd sing it on my own to the Lord. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. I can't tell you what a continual comfort that has been to me. Also a continual challenge to continue doing this, to, to really ingrain the practice into myself that whenever I feel anxious, to cast it on the Lord, to give it to Him. Peter says to do this with all of our anxieties, casting all your anxieties on Him, no exceptions. So, there is nothing too big or too small for our God. If we care about it, give it to Him. And in case you still don't really understand how to do this, we do it through prayer. Right? We do it by coming before Him, telling Him what's on our heart, and asking Him to take care of things, to take care of us. Possibly the hardest part about doing this, about casting our burdens at his feet, is leaving them there. Right? Consciously choosing to trust him with our cares. If we do this, this doesn't mean you won't ever feel that worry again, not at all. But when you do this, you know what to do then when they come back up. To bring it back and cast it at the Lord's feet again and again. And again, the quicker we do this, the quicker turnaround we have, the more or the less anxiety and the more peace we will 
experience in life. And, and Clowney adds this, says, The very act of casting our cares upon the Lord often changes them. When we cast our cares on the Lord, we often find that they were the concerns of our own pride, not the cares of his kingdom. And then as we do that, our mindsets become more aligned with his. So as we wrap up, I want you to try this out. All right, to, to put this, to start putting this into practice. I want you to, to take a paper, maybe your bulletin, pen or pencil. If you don't have one of those, you can use your phone, just put it in a note. All right? Because we all have anxieties and worries in our lives. I know you came here bearing some. Okay, this is universal. Some are huge, deep, convoluted, complex concerns. Some are small and seemingly trivial, but they seem to have taken up permanent residence in our minds and our hearts, right? So you might have a list of one thing or a hundred things. I want you to try to list out a top three, okay? Kids, you can do this too. List out the, the top three things in life that are worrying you, that are anxieties for you, potentially scary circumstances, maybe a, a relationship that's consuming your attention, a job that is proving strenuous or a job search is proving discouraging, difficult class you have to take at school, a bully you've had to face, the financial hardships or health hardships you're facing, fear of someone dying, struggle you've been having with a certain sin, that plagues a lot of us. Maybe the unknown future, what you're going to do with your life, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, how you're going to die. Write down whatever's been on your heart, your mind. It's been stressing you out. Then I want you to pray. I want you to, to bring these to God's throne, to heave them at his feet. See his mighty hand. Pour out your heart there to him. And then get up and leave your worry there. This may prove a lot harder than it sounds because it means releasing your pride. But you can do this. You can humble yourself under God's power and under his care. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in just a second. But I want to encourage you first, you can leave your worries there with him because he's got this. Because he's got you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares, cares for you. And he's got all the power to back that up. If today you doubt his care, I would encourage you to stare at the cross for a while. Because he demonstrably proved his love there. 
And if today you doubt his power, his capability to come through, then I'd encourage you to stare at the empty grave for a while until you can truly come to entrust yourself to the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. So you look at your list. Just go one by one. You can pray in the silence of your heart. You don't need to pray out loud. But practice telling God what's on your heart. Casting at his feet. I'll give you a minute to do this. And of course, you can continue later on. I encourage you. This really is a daily thing. Hourly even. To cast our cares on him. Because he cares for us.